It's hard to believe we're halfway through uh, after this Sunday, uh, our study with the Minor Prophets, uh, a series that we've entitled God Speaks Hope in the Darkness. Uh, the prophets uh, are God's messengers speaking to God's people uh, in, often in difficult places and dark days as they are confronted with the consequences of their sin and their unfaithfulness to God. Uh, they either are facing exile, they're in exile, or uh, they're coming out of exile wondering what it means to follow God. And, and God speaks to his prophets, not only confronting Israel and their sin, uh, but also holding out the hope of redemption. Uh, and that's what God does to all of us, wherever we find ourselves. He confronts us in our sin graciously. It's always a gracious thing to be confronted with sin because God not only confronts us, but he holds out to us. Uh, the hope of forgiveness and restoration. <clears throat> and, and that's exactly what we see take place in the book of Micah. But I, I was thinking about um, Mother's Day and, and just the, uh, the love and faithfulness of, of moms and how I've experienced that in my own life. Um, uh, and I couldn't help but think about, um, you know, as we celebrate Mother's Day, and no doubt a commercialized holiday that has taken on a life of its own, uh, it's also a gift to be able to stop and, and recognize uh, the gift of mothers. Uh, a mother's love and faithfulness is, is really a powerful and amazing thing. Um, I mean, you guys all know that it was Harry Potter's mom's love, right, that you know, saved him. And we know how powerful uh, it is. Um, <clears throat> even more than all of that, I, I know how powerful the faithfulness and the love of a mother is because I've watched it in my own life of our three children and uh, the, the gift of a mother-in-law who uh, modeled that uh, to, to my wife and her children. And I've seen that. And uh, as I mentioned, the spiritual mothers that God has given me, the short time in my life that I had foster mothers in, in my life, and then even in my latter years being adopted into a family being shown love, not because um, my mom had to, but because she chose to. Um, and experiencing the, the faithfulness and the, the love of a mother in that way. Uh, and yet, uh, you know, every parent's relation, every child's relationship with their parent is, is all kinds of uh, layers of complexity, right? Uh, my, my biological mom uh, and I didn't have a, a relationship, and spirit, uh, forgive me for some of you who've heard this story, but um, I felt it fitting to, to introduce uh, our sermon in, in this way this Sunday uh, my biological mom and I didn't really have a relationship from the time I was about five until 15. And then after that period of time, from the time about 15 uh, till the time in my early 20s in November of 2012, when she suddenly passed, our relationship uh, wasn't uh, much depth in it. And yet we were kind of reconnected, but just not deeply uh, connected. Um, but uh, I remember getting the news in, in 2012 in November that she had suddenly passed away. Um, and my family's from Arkansas. I was living in North Carolina at the time, and um, it fell upon me and my two other siblings. Um, we all have the same mom, different, different dads, and in different kind of situations and circumstances throughout a life, it fell upon us to go back to Arkansas and to gather her belongings and to uh, make sense of everything. And uh, I was young in ministry, had just actually begun in a full-time ministry position, and uh, the first funeral that I ever officiated. Uh, was the funeral of my mom. And <clears throat> as I prepared for that, we went through her things. And as you can imagine, not having a relationship with your biological mom from the time you're young, five years old to about 15, there's a lot of questions that you have in your mind uh, along the way of what happened. You know, why didn't, why wasn't my mom there? Does my mom love me? Does my mom think about me? Does my mom care about me? I always wanted a family. And the picture of a family that I saw, you know, and my friends I always welled up in my heart a desire to have a mom. And, uh, and God in his grace in ways that I didn't even know I needed to be ministered to uh, allowed me to be going through many of her things. And I, I realized many of the things that I uh, am interested in, my, my love for learning, my love for the written word, for poetry. I found out my mom had all of these interests and passions herself and uh, that lingering question of, did my mom really think about me? Now, was my mom faithful to me as a mom in the midst of all those years where we were apart? Uh, I came across a piece of paper in her belongings that uh, is actually her Facebook username and password. And, and my mom's username was on there. And then her password for her Facebook um, was Michael1987. 
Um, and I realized that day that my mom never really stopped loving me. And my mom never stopped faithfully holding me in her heart, even when I didn't know it, even when I'm sure it didn't look like what she wanted it to look like and, and, and was what it was supposed to look like. Uh, my mom was faithful to me as a mother from even a distance and in a way that I'm sure she longed for it to be different, just as I longed for it to be different. Uh, there is something powerful about the love and the faithfulness of a mom. Many of us can either bear witness to it because we've experienced it or even perhaps felt its absence. Uh, and I, I couldn't help but, uh, but be reminded of some scriptures that point us to, to the truth of who God is in relation to how he's given mothers to, to children. I mentioned some of them in our prayer time earlier, but Isaiah 66, 13, God says, as a mother comforts her child, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. God speaks to us and reveals himself as a father to the fatherless. Um, but God also uh, reveals himself as one who comforts, a heavenly father who comforts just like a mother. We have the beautiful picture and standard uh, uh, of what it means even to be a mom and a dad as we look to our heavenly father. But uh, Isaiah 49, 15 reminds us that in the messiness of life, uh, uh, can a woman forget her nursing child or show no compassion for the child of her womb? My mom would say, even if it doesn't look like you want it to, uh, you can't take away that love and faithfulness of a mother. Even though if that were to happen, Isaiah 49, 15 says, even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. It's God's covenant love and faithfulness. That's the strongest measure of love and faithfulness in this life. The love and faithfulness of a mother is hard to match. But there is a greater faithfulness, a covenant faithfulness that's revealed in our God and the God of the Bible. And that's what Micah takes us to. Micah um, is a book about the hope of God's covenant faithfulness. All of the prophets are reminding Israel that God has brought them into a relationship with himself. That's the word covenant, a promise, a relationship that God's established on the basis of his unchanging character in which he's committed himself to his people. And he's called those people that he's committed to himself to live in a way that reflects him. We see this going all the way back to Abraham and the promise of, uh, that God made to Abraham. And God was, to, was going to bless Abraham and and make him a blessing to all nations. And Abraham was to walk in his ways. And we see when, when God brought Israel out of Egypt and redeemed them, he redeemed them. And then he said, here's how my redeemed people are to live. Well, the prophets are coming along reminding Israel, hey, you remember you remember what, what God did when he brought us out of Egypt, when he redeemed us, when, when he promised to Abraham, he made a covenant with us and he called us to be his covenant people. You remember that? Well, we've been unfaithful and now's the time to turn back to God and to and to run to him. And Micah begins with Israel's covenant unfaithfulness. And as Emily read for us a moment ago, it ends with God's covenant faithfulness. You see, in, in our life, the, the hope of God's covenant faithfulness is that our unfaithfulness doesn't have to be the final word. Because God's covenant faithfulness is greater than our unfaithfulness. Look, look with me to Micah chapter one. It says the word of the Lord came to Micah of Morasheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, king of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Now, just quick backstory. The history of Israel. Israel once was a united kingdom under David. Um, not like the UK, but, you know, a united kingdom uh, under David and Solomon. And it was glorious. God blessed David and Solomon uh, though they were sinners, they, they humbled themselves uh, and, and chased after God, King David did, and Solomon started out well, and God blessed them. But after Solomon, Solomon lays the foundation for unfaithfulness, and his sons split the kingdom. And there's a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom goes by the name Israel. This is where it gets confusing. Uh, the whole thing's called Israel, but when they split, the northern kingdom calls themselves Israel, and the southern kingdom calls themselves Judah. The capital of the northern kingdom was Samaria. The capital of the southern kingdom was Jerusalem. Micah is writing before uh, the northern kingdom goes into exile to Assyria in 722 BC, as well as obviously before the southern kingdom goes into exile in 586 BC 
to Babylon. He's a, he's a contemporary of Hosea and Isaiah, writing, warning God's people, both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, to repent of their unfaithfulness and to return to the Lord. Um, and, and he's writing to them in this day, and he says, Hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. God's basically setting up an indictment, almost in a court case, calling witnesses, saying, Everyone listen to what God has to say against his people. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth and the mountains will melt under him and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All the things that we think are secure when God shows up, they tremble and fade away because God is the righteous and holy judge. He shows up and it says, verse five, all this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces and all her wages shall be burned with fire and all her idols I will lay to waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them and from the fee of a prostitute they shall return. Micah, God speaking through Micah, says to, uh, to the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, you have been unfaithful. Almost in the words of Hosea, uh, as Hosea had to chase uh, after a wife who had been unfaithful, and God called him to love Gomer to demonstrate God's love, covenant love uh, to us, <clears throat> even in our sin. He, he says to the people of Israel through Micah, you've been unfaithful. You chase after false gods. When, when the, the kingdom split in Samaria, uh, <clears throat> the king uh, that, uh, that was established there in Samaria set up two golden calves and set up a place in Samaria because they didn't have Jerusalem, which was in the southern kingdom. They said, we're going to set up our own place of worship and here are two golden calves. I mean, just think of the, the arrogance of God's people to, to put up golden calves after what God did at Mount Sinai when Aaron set up a golden calf when Moses was there receiving the Ten Commandments and the people wanted, wanted to know where Moses was, wanted to know where their God was. And Aaron, uh, giving in to the people, put together a golden calf and said, here's your God. Israel is fickle. One moment they can be content and satisfied with God and the next moment they can be complaining and saying, where is God? You know what? God hasn't been good to me in the last five minutes, so I'm going to go off, go off after this desire, go after this pleasure, go after this, um, <clears throat> this thing that I hold dear. We are a lot like Israel. We are, we are often fickle, forgetting what God has done and going our own way. And God calls Israel to the carpet and points out their covenant unfaithfulness. We're going to look at how their covenant unfaithfulness expressed itself. But do you know that all the sins, all the violence, all the exploitation, all the oppression, all the injustice, all the evil that Israel would do, that any nation will do, all of it stems back and finds its source in unfaithfulness to God. All those other things are an expression of when we've left the God that we profess to believe in or the one true God. And it's possible for God's people who profess faith in him to live contrary to their profession. And that's exactly what God is pointing out to Israel. And so it begins with Israel's covenant unfaithfulness, but it ends with God's covenant faithfulness. And I just want, want us to hear once more what God says in the very last verse. Of Micah chapter 7. Micah says, You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham, as you sworn, as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. It's an amazing thing to say that God is going to be faithful to his promise when in a moment we get done walking through the, the book of Micah, you're going to realize that God's promising his covenant faithfulness to a bunch of people who continually turned away from him, rejected him, spit in his face, chose their own way, and rebelled against him. 
God's covenant faithfulness is our greatest hope as we face the darkness of our own sin. <clears throat> and at the heart of what God says to his people is that they've forsaken their responsibility within God's covenant relationship with them to live in such a way that put on display that they belong to God. They've been unfaithful. And God is calling them to repentance and reminding them that if we repent, we will not be met with an angry God looking to smite us, but we'll be met with the open arms of a God who promises to be faithful to his word, to forgive us and welcome us in. So the book of Micah, I think, can be summed up uh, the message in two questions. And they're from the passage, uh, the passages that we read at the beginning of the service. Micah chapter six, one through eight. What does God require of his people? God says in, in Micah chapter six, verse one, <clears throat> almost as a summary of what he's been saying to this point. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear your voice. Hear, hear you mountains, the indictment of the Lord. For the Lord has an indictment against his people and he will contend with Israel. Listen to the way he questions Israel. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? It's as if God's saying, what have I done to you that's made it so difficult for you to, to obey me, to, to be faithful to me? Answer me. I, I redeemed you. Here's what God does often throughout the prophets, and he does in verses four and five. He says, go back, go back in your mind to when you were in bondage and slavery in Egypt. And it was then that I saw you. I saw your suffering. I heard your cries and I redeemed you by a mighty hand from the Egyptians. And I brought you out. I redeemed you from the house of slavery through Moses and Aaron. And, and then along the way, I, I delivered you through all kinds of trials and all kinds of opposition. Why at the end of verse five? that you may know the saving acts of the Lord. I redeemed you, not because you are worthy, but because I am faithful and demonstrated the saving acts of the Lord. Therefore, what does the Lord require? Now, now notice the order here. This is important. Micah 6, 1 through 5 is telling us two things. Only those who have experienced God's saving acts can live as God requires. So Micah 6 isn't telling you if you want to be saved, then you must live this way. The Bible doesn't do that. Every other religion says, here's the standard, live up to it. And if you do, God will be pleased with you. Christianity flips it all on its head all the way in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. It says we can't do enough in order for God to save us. God must, by his covenant faithfulness and his grace and his mercy, must save us according to his own will and his own purpose, so that then, having been saved, experiencing his grace, we can do what he requires. God says, know my grace, live as I require. Not live as I require, so that you may know my grace. However, Micah 6, 1-5 tells us, though only those who have experienced God's saving grace can live as he requires, it's a little bit of a different emphasis, but an important one. Those who know God's saving grace are called to walk in God's ways. We, we can't discount the two. We can't say, oh, well, I know God's grace, so it's good for me to just kind of go off over here and do my own thing. God's gracious. He'll forgive me. I, I, can, I can be me. I can do me. And God will get over it. Or God will let me come back. God says, if you know my saving grace, you can't. You can't take my saving grace for granted and, and, and presume against the kindness of the Lord and go on living your own way. Those who know God's saving grace are called to walk in God's ways. And what does God want? What does God want? Look at verse six. With what shall I come before the Lord? He's talking about worship and bow myself before God on high. What kind of worship is God pleased with? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings with a calf a year old and, and keeping with the covenant uh, in, in Leviticus? Will, will the Lord be pleased with the thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Could I, could I bring enough sacrifices that would please God? Should I give my firstborn for my transgression? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Just think about the, the love of a child. Could I, could I just give 
Uh, Is my sin so great that I would have to give the thing that I love the most? What do you require, Lord? Verse 8, he has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? This really is a summary of the all of life devotion and obedience that God desires from his people. God doesn't just want ritual worship and devotion in the sense of of going through the motions of attending worship and making sacrifices and bringing it into our day, doing church and and participating in all the the things that come along with it. He's not not looking for those things as the, the heart of worship. What he's looking for is you to give all of yourself to him. It's a a wholehearted devotion and obedience. What is the worship that God delights in? It's not sacrifices and songs, though those things can be expressions of our worship. But at the heart of what God desires from us is for us to, to come recognizing our need for him and recognizing his provision for us and giving ourselves wholly to him. What Micah 6, 8 does is sums up the law. You know, the law is is perhaps summed up best in the Ten Commandments. Uh, There's 613 commands in the the covenant, and uh, as we see in Exodus and Leviticus, uh, but the ten uh, words of the Ten Commandments kind of sum it up, and there's two halves of the Ten Commandments. The first half addresses our relationship to God that we shouldn't have any idols before him, that we shouldn't blaspheme his name, that we should worship him as the only God, that we should keep the Sabbath, which is recognizing our limitations and and recognizing him as the creator. Uh, These things are in relation to God. And then the, the remaining look at our relationship to one another, honoring our mother and father and not committing adultery and not lying and not coveting and not stealing and and all of these uh, aspects of our relationship to other people. Do you remember how Jesus summed up the law? He said when they came to him and they asked him what the greatest commandment was, he said the greatest commandment is that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's a quote from Deuteronomy 6.4. And he said the second is like it, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's from Leviticus 19. He said on these two, the whole law and the prophets are summed up. Love God and love your neighbor. Man, we've just got all kinds of complicated things sometimes. I feel like when we think about the Christian life and we have all these things that we're trying to do and God's looking at his people saying, love me and love your neighbor. And obviously in that, there's all kinds of implications that need to be fleshed out. Well, Micah 6.8 is that kind of summary. Rather than starting first with loving God and then loving neighbor, it actually flips it and it's pointing out the particular sin, the particular indictment that he brings against Israel. He says, love your neighbor, demonstrated in the call to do justice and to love mercy. And you can't love your neighbor if you don't love God, if you don't walk humbly before God. You see, Israel had failed on these two accounts. If you you remember what it said, what we said in in Micah 1, that, that Israel had been unfaithful to God. Well, as you go throughout Micah, if you just look in chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, he says, Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil in their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform that evil they were thinking about because it's in their power of their hands to do it. They covet fields and seize them and houses and they take them away. They oppress a man with his house and a man and his inheritance. There's some wealthy people in Israel who have the means and the ability to take from others who are, uh, who are weaker and who are exposed and vulnerable. And it says they, they dream it up, they have the power to do it, and they carry it out. These are God's people doing this evil and wicked thing. Chapter 3 says it's not just a few uh, people who have some power, but the rulers and the prophets themselves. Hear you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice? You are the leaders of God's people. Should you not know justice? And yet you hate what is good and love what is evil. You tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from their bones. 
eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. You just eat people up and spit them out. Expend people, take advantage of them. It goes on in verse 9. This is perhaps the, the best summary of it all. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight. You build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests, those who represent God to the people, teach for a price. And its prophets practice divination for money. God says in in chapter 2, verse 11, sorry to make you flip back. He said, if a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach if you give me a beer. He said that would be the preacher for Israel. It, it, the people are, uh, the, even the, the leaders, the spiritual leaders of God's people say, I'll, I'll teach if you give me wine and strong drink, if you meet my fancy, if you fix my desire, I'll tell you whatever you want to hear. The leaders called to do justice, they've got it all backwards. They make straight paths crooked. And they do things for a price, taking bribes from God's people. It gets, keeps on going in Micah chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. The voice of the Lord cries to the city and its sound of wisdom to fear your name. Hear the rod of him who appointed who appointed it. Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the scant measure that is accursed? Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? Your rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies. Their tongues are deceitful in their mouth. Chapter 7, verse 3 through 4, their hands are on what is evil to do well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe. The great man utters the evil desire of his soul, and thus they weave it together. What tangled web we do weave when we do it to deceive. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright of them a thorn hedge. Paul would say it in Romans chapter 3, there is none righteous. No, not one. God's indictment against his people is that they have failed to keep the law. They failed to love their neighbor. They failed to love God. What does God require of them? He called them to do justice. That's what he said. The first part, there are three things he says there. Do justice. Now, I've been reading through the prophets and reading through Kings and Chronicles and Samuel and and all throughout the scriptures, all the way back to the law. Do you want to know what God's concerned about No question about it. God is concerned about justice. God is concerned about his people reflecting his character. Sometimes we don't give a lot of thought to this. Um, Today, we give a lot of thought to justice, but we don't always ask, what does the Bible say about justice? Doing justice isn't the same uh, uh, as, as perhaps some of the things that we hear. It doesn't encompass everything that a godly Israelite must do in obedience to God, but it refers to those who oppress, to those who cheat, to those who make judicial decisions with partiality. Doing justice, God's people are called to to not just think about justice, not just talk about justice, but do it, which implies being people who are fair, who are decent, who are honest. It goes beyond just Uh, giving what someone is due according to the law, but it, it comes down to treating people as they are created in God's image, that positively we wouldn't just refrain from evil, but positively we would help the weak. We would give to the needy. We would address situations with rank injustice. A description in a book called What is the Mission of the Church by Kevin DeYoung and Greg Gilbert, I think do a good job of helping us understand what it means to do justice as they described there. Another resource that I think has helped the church is uh, Tim Keller. His book, Generous Justice, shows us that biblical justice involves both equal treatment before the law, thus no unjust measures, but also giving people due, giving people their due as image bearers of God. So when you look at what the Bible says about justice, it, it starts with a foundation of equal treatment, no partiality. But it goes on to say that there should be a special concern for the vulnerable. God identifies himself as a God who cares for the poor, who cares for the fatherless, the orphan, who cares for the widow, 
who cares for the, the sojourner, the, uh, the exile, the alien, the foreigner who comes into a land. And, and we see that justice is, is, is doing what is right, uh, equal treatment before the law, but also giving people their due as image bearers of God. This goes beyond just a, uh, living to a bare minimum, but it comes down to a, a type of generosity. It's not only a special concern for the vulnerable, but a generosity that's characterized as loving mercy. Do you notice it says do justice, but love mercy? Mercy is not just uh, doing acts of compassion, which it certainly involves, but there's something deeper that God called of his people. He called them to love mercy. That, that we would delight in it. That it would be our desire. Why would this be the case? Well, this is the case because of who our God is. Listen to, listen to what God's word says. Deuteronomy 24, 17 through 19 says, Do not deprive the foreigner or the fatherless, the fatherless of justice or take the, clo the cloak of the widow as a pledge. When you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, when you're getting the fruit and some falls down, don't go back and get it, but leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless and the widow so that the Lord your God may bless you and all the works of your hands. That's the story of Ruth. Tell my daughter, I mentioned Ruth. She's been asking me uh, to talk about Ruth. That's her, her middle name. But that's what God did when he provided for Ruth, a poor widow, uh, leaving the gleanings of the fields. Proverbs tells us whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker. Remember, it's, it's giving people equal treatment under the law, but also giving them their due as image bearers of God. Proverbs 22.2 says, Rich and poor have this in common. The Lord is the maker of them all. Psalm 41 says, Blessed is he who gives active consideration to the weak and the poor. Proverbs 31, 8-9 says, Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves and defend the rights of the poor and the needy. Ezekiel 18, 5-9 says, If a man is righteous and does what is just and right, this is what his life will look like. He will not eat upon the mountains or lift his eyes up to the idols of the house of Israel. He will not defile his neighbor's wife or approach a woman in her time of impurity. He does not oppress anyone, but he restores the debtor his pledge. He commits no robbery, but he gives his bread to the hungry and he covers the naked with a, gar a garment. He does not lend at interest or take any profit. He withholds his hand from injustice. He executes true justice between man and man, walks in my statutes and keeps my rules by acting faithfully. He is righteous and he shall surely live. God calls his people to do justice and to love mercy, which involves an active consideration for those who are vulnerable, the poor, the widow, the orphan, as well as a generosity in meeting their needs. That's a high calling for God's people. I can't help but think in, in our day that there are people who perhaps have, have been hurt and burnt, have been burnt by Christianity, been by burnt by the church or a Christian and they rejected an image of who they think God is. And I, I just I read the scriptures and I read the prophets and I'm like, I, I want you to know who God really is, who God really reveals himself to be. He's so much better than, than sometimes our poor representation of him. He's so much more merciful and just than our our shadowy reflection of him. God calls his people. He expects of his people who have experienced his saving grace to model God's character in the way that they live, which is summed up in calling them to do justice and to love mercy. And friends, you can't do that if you don't walk humbly with God. To walk humbly with God is his closing statement. It's as if to say that all of this call, this great calling to, to love others as image bearers of God, to do justice and love mercy, you can't do unless your heart has been humbled, which is expressed through faith and dependence on God. It's knowing Him that frees us up from our self-righteousness, from our pride, and from our materialism and our greed and our, uh, and our desire to protect ourselves, so that we can love others like God loves us. Oh, as I think about that and as I read that, I, I want you to know when you read the Minor Prophets, we shouldn't equate uh, Israel with America or any other country. That's not how we should read this. We should first think about Jesus because I don't know anyone who's demonstrated what it means to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with God like Jesus did. And it's only through faith in him that the church shares in the promises of God to Israel 
So when God speaks this word of indictment to Israel, it should cause us to listen up because God's not speaking to those people out there. He's speaking to us in here as his people. You see, what God requires of us doesn't fit into the cultural uh, boxes within our day. God's saying we can't be people who just talk about justice or just do justice, but we don't love mercy. We, we can't be people who only want to talk about loving mercy, but have no concern for justice. God's, God's shattering sometimes the categories that we put ourselves in. We can't be people who talk about doing justice, but have no concern for God. There's marching in our streets that say no justice, no peace, because we want to correct injustice. But when we cry out for peace, there's one who is the author and maker of peace. We can't do justice apart from concern for God. But the point, I think, of Micah 6 8 is to say to God's people, you can't claim to be God's people and not be concerned about justice, not be concerned about loving your neighbor, not be concerned about loving mercy and caring for the vulnerable. It doesn't spell out how we're to do it and what ways we're to do it. But there's no question how God identifies himself and what he calls us to as his people. I think it's important for us as we seek to flesh this out in our lives that we don't we don't look at opportunities that God may be giving us and make them requirements for all of us. It doesn't mean that all of us, as we walk past, perhaps someone who is homeless, that we all have the, the same responsibility in that moment to, to meet the need that they're asking for or meet some other need. It doesn't mean that we'll all have the, the same involvement in every area of, of concern, of loving neighbor, of addressing injustice, of speaking for the vulnerable. But all of God's people must have this heart and have this concern because it's not just a convenient, it's not just a helpful thing that the church be identified as this, but it's a necessary thing because of who God is. And, and now we can look at many areas, perhaps in the history of the church, where we failed in this regard. And at the same time, we can look at many ways in which God's people, God has always been faithful to raise up a people who will bear witness to him. Even if we don't, the rocks will cry out, God will make himself known. And he has done it time and time again throughout the history, not only of this country, but throughout the history of time. God has raised up witnesses to bear uh, truth and testimony to who God is. But as I think about this, I couldn't this week, I just couldn't help but think about what does it mean for us as Christians to pursue justice in a world uh, that's filled with all kinds of conversation about social justice? I think these, these thoughts uh, just are a humble attempt to encourage and direct us in these days beyond the, the, the yelling at one another and the talking past one another and the prejudging one another and an effort to say, if this is who God calls us to be, we can't dance around it and not, and not address it. We have to think about what God's calling us to be as his people to pursue justice. I think number one, what I would say is faithfully look to God's word for wisdom and discernment as the foundation, right? The foundation of doing justice and loving mercy is walking humbly with God. So we have to be people who seek God, who listen to what he said. If God speaks, we want to be people who listen. So we want to faithfully look to God's word for wisdom and discernment. I don't want our pursuit of justice to be about a narrative or to be grounded in the most recent headline. I want it to be grounded in God's word. Listen, we should not undersell what God's word has to say about justice. It has much more to say about justice than sometimes we've given, we've given concern to. And it challenges us in ways that, um, <clears throat> that we need to hear as well as correct sometimes the impulse that we have within our culture to chase a certain headline or narrative. There's a pressure in our day now uh, culturally, to, to jump on whatever the recent conversation is about justice. And God's calling us to listen to him first. And then as we listen to God's word for wisdom and discernment, we also need to humbly listen and I believe learn from what's taking place around us. The common grace that God has given us to know our history, uh, to know the, the concerns and issues that people are facing and are addressing to to understand the, the dynamics of, uh, of the most vulnerable in, in our own communities. 
Closely following this, here's, here's, if you don't hear much else, here's one thing that I especially want us to hear. Yes, I want God to raise some of you up to change the world. But proximity matters in our pursuit of justice. And let's be people who start and care about our community, not just every conversation that's going on out there. Let's be people who care about where God's placed us. I think sometimes one of our biggest issues is we get so concerned about whatever national conversation is going on that we aren't people who are doing justice and loving mercy and walking humbly with people in our community, right where God's placed us. And, and I think we, we have to be people who, who pursue proximity in our pursuit of justice, who, who look around the needs that we have in our community. Are we a church that, that makes God's word accessible to the poor, to the vulnerable in our community? Are we a church that, that, that doesn't just talk about these things, but models them, and not for an Instagram picture, but as the, as the true reflection of the heart of who we are as God's people? Fourthly, we ought to pursue justice in community with other believers. To put that another way, we pursue justice in the local church. I think there's, there's so much of a pool to, uh, to, uh, to kind of identify in various tribes today. The one tribe that God's called to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with God is his people, the church. And we need to own our failures, we need to address our blind spots, and we need to, with humility and boldness before God, say we want our whole lives to be devoted to you in love of you and love of neighbor. And we can't get there unless God uses all of us together to be his people in our community at this time for his glory and pursuit of what he's called us to be. And then we must seek to please God and not man. Our pursuit of justice isn't to gain popularity. It isn't to make Christianity more appealing and relevant to the culture. We must first and foremost be constrained by the desire to please God above everything else. And that will at times put us at odds with the culture. And then at other times that will put us in a position to bear witness to why we stand for what we stand for. And all of this, in many ways, I recognize as more nuanced and there's complexity to the conversations and there's aspects that we can sum up in just a few principles. But the principles are pushing us towards God and towards one another and towards the places that God has put us. Because God hasn't gotten our address wrong. His word hasn't gotten his call to justice wrong. And God's gospel isn't insufficient to create in us the kind of character that we need to be his people for his purposes. What does God require of us as his covenant people who have experienced his saving grace? It's to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with him. And I said in the beginning that we're a lot like Israel because as I lay all that out, it's a lot easier to say than it is to do. And all of us perhaps have failed to live up to even our own desires to love our neighbor as we wish or to love God as we desire. Israel certainly had. This call that God lays out, this beautiful summary of the law, was indeed an indictment against Israel. And the second question is what gives us hope. Because it's not only, the message of Micah isn't only summed up by asking what does God require, but it's asking also what is God like? That's what Micah's name means. Who is like the Lord? It's actually the root of my name, Micah. Who is like the Lord? <laughs> to which I've always answered, not me. And yet God make me more like you, right? Who is like the Lord? Micah 7, 18 through 20 gives us more than we could chew on in this remaining time that we have. But listen once more to who God is. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love, covenant faithfulness. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You notice what it didn't say? He will not tread us underfoot. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast not us away, but he will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. 
because he's faithful to his promises. His promise to Abraham to bless Abraham, to make him a great nation and through him bring blessing to all people, a promise that would be fulfilled ultimately in Jesus. And in Micah, he says that the hope of God's covenant faithfulness expressed in verses 18 through 20 is going to come to us through one who is a shepherd and a king. Just as as you look at this, look at chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. God's been laying out his indictment against Israel. And here in the, at the end of chapter two, he gives this word of hope. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob, and I will gather the remnant of Israel. God always has a remnant. Those who trust him, who repent of their sins and who trust in God's promises. He says, I'm going to gather them up. I will set them together and they'll be like a sheepfold together. And it'll be a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude, all kinds of people from all kinds of places. He's talking about Israel being scattered. And he who opens the breach goes up before them and they break through and pass the gate going out. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. God's saying there's going to be a king who comes, who shepherds God's people, who 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 executes God's steadfast love and covenant faithfulness to his people. He goes on to say in chapter five, listen to this, you'll you'll recognize these words. This is Christmas and and may for us here. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem of Epaphrath, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old and from the ancient of days. This one, it says, he shall stand, verse 4, and shepherd the flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will dwell secure, for it shall, he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. God is coming to be king and shepherd of his people of Israel. He's going to come and deliver them from their sins and enable them to walk in his ways. Look at Micah 7, verse 14. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance who dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old, as in the days when you came up out of the land of Egypt. That's redemption language. I will show them marvelous things. The nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouth. Their ears shall be deaf. Deaf, and they shall lick the dust like a serpent, like crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God, and they shall be in fear of you. God's going to show up and shepherd his people to redemption. The promises of God's covenant faithfulness in Micah come true in Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 1, God shows up to Joseph and says, Don't divorce Mary. She's going to give birth to a son and he's going to forgive my people of their sins. And there in chapter two, the the wise men come and they said, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And they gather the scrolls and they're looking and searching for what God's word says. And they say, oh, it's in Bethlehem. And they quote Micah 5 2 from Bethlehem, a little town in the the city of David and and, in the uh, land of Judea. God is going to bring forth one whose days are from of old, who is eternal, who will be the king and the leader of God's people. And it's in John chapter 10 that Jesus gathers his disciples and he says, I'm the shepherd. And I know my sheep. And I lay down my life for my sheep. Listen to verse 11. Through 17, we'll close with these words. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them away. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. But I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock and one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again.
Micah tells us that the hope of God's covenant faithfulness love is that he promises a shepherd king who will come and save us from our sins by laying down his life for us and restore us that we might walk in his ways. Because it's only once we know his saving grace that we might do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. Micah 7, 7 ends by saying, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. There's none like Jesus. We look to him. Our shepherd, our king, our hope in the darkness. As we close, I ask, I ask you, where is your hope? What are you trusting in? What are you looking to today? Are you looking to your own track record of doing enough good for God? Doing enough good to others? Micah would say you're looking in the wrong place. You can only look to God. It's by His grace that He redeems us. That He laid down His life in our place and that He took it up again. He rose from the dead so that anyone who calls on Him can be saved. And if we've experienced His grace and His mercy, how can we not live our lives wholeheartedly for Him? Seeking to reflect Him in the way that we love our neighbor and that we walk humbly with Him. So my, my challenge to us as we close our time in prayer is to ask you where you are. What are you hoping in? Are you walking in what God has called us to as His people? Perhaps today's the day for you to trust in Christ. Call on Him as Savior. Perhaps today is the day to recognize your own failure, perhaps to pursue what God calls us to. To love our neighbors by doing justice and loving mercy. Perhaps you not even feel like you're walking humbly with God and you need a heart check today and say, God, draw me close to you so that I can reflect you to the world. You remember what Jesus said? He has sheep who aren't of this fold. He, come, he came to save us and intends for us to bear witness to him for others who don't yet know him. And we do that through bearing witness to the hope of the gospel, as well as living lives that reflect that. That's the mission that God's called us to. Those are the missional rhythms, the, the, the goal, the vision that God's calling us to. Let's ask that God would work that in us as we return again and again to his grace and his mercy that he's won for us in Christ. Let's pray.